What's the inflation situation in the United States? We're going to go over three different measures in this episode. In parts one, two, and three, we're going to go over producer prices. We're going to go over consumer prices and import and export prices. We're going to do that with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, good morning. We're going to start out talking about the French. I guess they helped us out 200 some years ago and we're going to turn to them now for help in getting an idea of where the global trade shipping industry is heading. Can you tell us a little bit about this company whose name I'm not going to pronounce because I, I wouldn't want to insult the most beautiful language in the world, but the abbreviation, the acronym is CMA, CGM, what, who, why? Yeah, I'm not going to pronounce them either. And you're right. I think it's appropriate to start out talking about French and boats and shipping because, as you as you just mentioned, that was a big part of the American revolutionary effort. So a debt of gratitude to the French and their shipping prowess and capabilities, <laughs> which uh, we, should, we should acknowledge repeatedly. Um, so we're talking about today is that a specific company, CMA, CGM, which is a big French company. They own something like 566, owner operate 566 vessels. I think it's 755 offices in 160 countries, 750 warehouses that serve 420 some odd ports along 285 shipping lines. So essentially they're, they're a pretty big, a big freight shipping company uh, that, you know, when they tell you something, when they do something, you should pay attention to because, you know, it, it, they seem to know or they at least are a big part of that industry. That's right. And in the article that we're going over, which you posted at Alhambra Investments at the blog over there, it was posted on the 10th of September, which was last Friday. The title is The Non-Charitable Economics of Not-Inflation. Non-charitable because it seems like this company here is being charitable but of course yes i'm sure they are charitable in their own way but not in their main line of business tell us what the pretty interesting news is from the company what they announced sort of out of nowhere kind of just a, a short little nugget they said we're going to freeze our shipping and freight rates across every single freight line every single port every single activity they do until february of 2022 Normally, when you see uh, rate freezes, it's, it's sort of like, okay, that's, that, that's maybe a, a, a normal part of business. But under this kind of climate, where freight rates and shipping rates have been what? They've been skyrocketing, surging for, a, you know, for most of this year, going back into last year. So it's, it's kind of weird that they would say, in this environment, which is basically the first time the shipping freighting business has been robust since before 2008, where you know shipping prices haven't completely you know declined year after year after year up until this uh, up until this year suddenly things are going well for them why on earth would this large huge french shipper say we're not going to raise prices anymore even though prices have been going through the roof for the better part of the year it's it's wait a minute are, are they being charitable are they saying you know we've got enough money in our pocket we don't want to put any more money in our pocket is that really what's going on here no no definitely not uh, quickly, though, you mentioned that the shipping industry was robust before 2008. And I don't want to just gloss over that statement. Of course, people that watch the show know what we're referring to. But before 2008, 
I like to refer to it as the post-Cold War globalization. And it coincided with, guess what? The Euro-dollar expansion coming unmoored in the, in the creation of money. And uh, there, there's a, um, the BIS has data that goes back to the 70s. And they found that cross-border claims, which is like the largest, most broadest measure of global money that I can find that's being reported consistently, from the 70s until and through 2007, it grew at a compounded growth annual rate of some 14%. After that, just barely nothing, nothing really. It went down and now it's been going up a little bit. But guess what was growing at that same percentage internationally? Foreign direct investment. I don't think it's a coincidence. I'm literally not exaggerating. It was 14% compounded annual growth rate over that same period. Maybe it's a coincidence. But before 2008, shipping, global trade, the economy powered by money. Ever since then, no. And here you are, you're saying, wow, they've had a heaven sent mana coming down with all these shortages, with these snafus and the ports being shut down. And here's a French company saying, nah, we don't want any more money. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's just sort of out of the blue where this year has been the first year in a long time that things are going right and things are going really well for if you're the if you got some boats, you know, there's there's a lot of people who are signing up to 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 charter ships for you and they're willing to pay for it because apparently they can't get goods anywhere around the world. So for this large French firm to say, "Look, we're going to freeze rates not just for a couple weeks, but all the way to February 22, which means the rest of this year, the, the busy Christmas season, which is right now when people are getting uh, shipping goods for to get in, in front of the holidays, all the way until February next year, they're going to be freezing rates. It's sort of one of those light bulb goes off in the back of your head moments because you're right, Emil. They may be the company's very charitable in some of their other endeavors, but you're not charitable in what you do, what your business is. If you're starting to restructure and rebid your services and your prices, that says something maybe has changed here and something maybe significant has changed. And so this discussion is all about producer prices. We're gonna talk about what the results were last Friday, but I think where we're going is that you believe that maybe in retrospect, what we're gonna see is that producer prices have stopped increasing, they've moderated. I'm going to pull up a graph here. Yeah, let's I mean, what's what do we think is going on here? Let's be explicit about what we've been what we've been saying all along, which unfortunately, or, you know, uncomfortably puts us in the same camp as Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve is that the bout of inflation is not inflation. It's consumer and producer and every prices have gone up. But it's not technically inflation because it's being caused by other factors. Like what? Supply factors. Um, you know, there is definitely a logistical problem, especially in the West Coast of the United States, where we have a shortage of truck drivers. There's not enough chassis. Railroads are all screwed up, especially throughout the Midwest. You know, the, the railroad executives were hauled in front of Congress and basically said, we can't really keep track of our trains at the moment. Hmm. So there are definitely supply bottlenecks and logistical problems that came about largely because of the imbalance between supply and demand, much of which was fed by transitory factors themselves, including the U.S. Treasury Department's deposit of checks directly into the accounts of American consumers, which boosted demand way above the ability in a short, condensed time frame of suppliers and, and shippers and freighters 
to be able to match supply with demand. And it caused an enormous imbalance in, in prices. And that's what we saw through producer prices, import prices, consumer prices earlier this year. But here's the thing, if that's really what's going on here, a temporary boost in demand, a bunch of real big crap problems in, in supply and shipping and logistics, that's not going to last. Eventually, these things start to work themselves out. When you think about it on the supply side, you know, eventually there's enough trucks and chassis and enough railroad capacity and, and the computer systems catch up and people start managing the supply a little bit better or more attuned to the current conditions and they start to work themselves out. And when that happens, unless inflation is really inflation, you would expect as supply starts to become less inelastic, more elastic and comes back up online, given whatever demand is at that time, prices are going to adjust lower or at least not rise as fast. Jeff, people heard you just say inflation is not inflation. You've given the first part of the thesis, supply demand shocks brought about by supply chain disruptions, COVID, and also demand surges because of the stimulus checks in the United States. And perhaps because of COVID, you're, you're rushing to buy out some things. You've got the relief rallies with the reopening of the economy where everything is condensed into an immediate rally, a survivor euphoria. And don't forget you too, you know, we have an inventory shock as well because mm -hmm. big companies have heard, hey, we've got supply problems here. We've got logistical problems. They've just been ordering like mad. They've been just, you know, double, triple order book, whatever it is. They've just been saying, look, I just want to get stuff in my, in my hands so that I can dependably have it because, you know, just in time is out the window. We just, we're going to carry larger, larger loads of inventory because we think that we need it in order to make sure that we have our, we have our, we have it uh, in our ability to sell it down the road. So there's also inventory being stuffed into the supply chain as well. We're not really sure how much of that's going to come or what's going to come out, when it's going to come out. Supply chain in um, logistical full body dry heave on a global basis happening for a year, check. But then you're saying inflation is not really inflation. You haven't explained that in this episode yet. Right. Inflation, by that you mean? Textbook inflation, legitimate inflation, actual inflation. I know we're making, it sounds like we're making a distinction without a difference, but we really are. No, it's inflation. important. Let's talk about inflation itself. The real inflation is essentially a prolonged, sustained acceleration in consumer prices, broadly based, not, not, you know, not limited to a narrow slice of the economy or a narrow slice of the consumer bucket, but pretty much all prices rising, and not just for a couple months or a year, but year after year after year. And the reason they do that, the reason they can stay, inflation rates can continue to go on, is simply because there's too much money chasing too few goods. That's the old adage about inflation is that it's a monetary phenomenon, where it's, which means when there's too much money in the economy, normal adjustments that like we're talking about after a supply shock would not take place. We'd have a supply shock, prices would go up, but then they would never be able to adjust because there's too much money flowing through the real economy that makes that all prices continue to go up and up and up. And then eventually what happens is uh, economic participants, consumers, businesses, whatever, they get normalized to higher prices. They come to expect higher prices, and that just feeds into a vicious cycle of damaging economic circumstances. We're not, what we're saying here is we have the supply shock, we have the, that going on, transitory factors, temporary things in demand. 
but we don't have the monetary component. And without the monetary component, it, it's not that it won't last, it's, it can't last. We've seen this before. We're talking about producer prices. On the 10th of September, it was reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics that headline PPI increased 8.3% year over year. Core PPI increased 6.7% year over year. The commodity index, 19.9%. This was another month at the highest rate since the middle 70s. And you may think, well, is that a long time? Yes, this data set goes back to the 1950s. So it's quite impressive. But Jeff, I'm going to pull up a graph that shows we've seen this impressive surge in producer prices before, twice during what I like to call the silent depression since 2007. And it didn't continue. And, and our thesis is we expect that to happen again because we don't have the fiscal and monetary money flooding into the system like we're told is happening, but is not really happening. Yeah, and that's really the big point, I think, Emil, we should spend a little time on is that we're told that the money part is happening. In fact, that's you know QE, the Federal Reserve is debasing the currency and flooding the world with way, way, way too much currency. And that's really part of the part of the inflation narrative is that, yeah, what we're seeing, what, what's happened in the early part of this year is simply the inevitable consequences of the Fed's, you know, irresponsible money and reckless money printing finally starting to show up. What we're saying is that, no, we've seen this before, you know, going back to 2008 and again in 2010, 2011, it wasn't about the Federal Reserve and its money printing. In fact, the reason that the that they didn't last in those two time periods was because the Federal Reserve doesn't actually print money and the monetary environment in those periods, like the current period, was equally confusing because people hear money printing, they see the Federal Reserve's balance sheet balloon up, they see the level of bank reserves increase by multiple trillions, and they think, well, money must have been printed. They don't realize that what you see in the Fed's balance sheet is only a small part of the story, and really, it's the least interesting and least relevant part of the story. What you should be paying attention to is the, the shadow money elements, which is difficult to do, I understand, that's the whole reason we're here, is that you know, it, it's tough to understand or tough to really see and observe and, and uh, interpret what's going on in the shadow money world. And that's why we go to, we use things like treasury yields and curves and things like that to help us along. And what they're telling us is that, you know, the Fed might have printed trillions in bank reserves, but that's not really effective money. And what's going on in the shadow money that you don't see is still highly, highly disinflationary, if not outright deflationary. So the shadow money says, like in 2008, like in 2010, 2011, the money's not there. So whatever's gone on in consumer, producer, import prices in the United States, not outside the United States, but only in the United States this year, it doesn't have the monetary emphasis behind it to make it into actual inflation. That's why I, I refuse to call it inflation, because it doesn't meet the definition. It doesn't have that monetary component which means it's something else. And we, as we just spent a couple of minutes talking about, we know what those something else is. This is not a big mystery. In fact, it was entirely predictable, as we've been saying the entire time, that there would be short-run impacts from the Treasury Department's fiscal emphasis, as well as all of these supply problems, but we expected that they would not last very long. And as you were about to go over, we're already starting to see some of these things come down again. We're starting to see the other side of transitory emerge. Let me pull up another graph, a graph that we're going to see 
in spirit traced out similarly in each of our three inflation measures, PPI, CPI, and import prices. And I'm going to call it the camelback hump. Jeff, take a look at this. And you've done this for us. Very convenient, very kind of you. The camelback hump here is not as clear. You know, there's two kind of camels out there, Jeff. There's the one with the two humps one and the one with the one, one hump. Yeah. But dear audience, you can see a spike then down and then the very recognizable camel hump. We're going to see this over and over and over more pronounced in the graphs ahead. But basically, what are these two humps coincide with, Jeff? Well, yeah, I mean, what we're saying is that this was predictable because we've already seen it once. It happened once before last year. Uh, we saw, uh, you know, the United States, the Treasury Department deposited checks or uh, uh, you know, digital dollars directly into accounts of consumers last year in the initial period, uh, the reopening phase of uh, in 2020, mm -hmm. and it had an immediate impact. Uh, in, that you can see in prices. There was a burst in demand, or at least a, a return of demand, especially for imported goods and domestically produced goods. In the goods economy in the United States, that turned around prices from the deflation that they had been in earlier in, in 2020, coincident to the, great financial, the, global financial, the second global financial crisis. But that didn't last either. Even though it was a big amount, you know, it was multiple trillions supposedly from the Treasury Department, it had a temporary impact. And then by the end of the year, we had prices actually in some places negative again, you know, going into November and December of 2020. So we already saw once last year, again, the same sort of setup, same sort of scenario, temporary supply, supply inelasticity, boosted demand, inability, supply chain stretch, all that stuff happened last year in a little bit lower, a little bit to a lesser degree. And again, it turned out to be temporary and transitory because despite Jay Powell going on 60 Minutes in May of 2020, telling, he, telling you know, the, the 60 Minutes report, I forget who it was, that he flooded the world with digital dollars, that just wasn't true. He lied his ass off at that time because he needed people to believe in it. The, the situation was so bad that he had to lie about actually printing money and flooding the world with it. We, we knew at the time that that wasn't true. And then, of course, the, la the transitory inflation of last year, which wasn't inflation, simply because he didn't actually print money. They created bank reserves, which are a very different thing. So we've seen this once already in the same quote unquote cycle. Now, what happened going ahead into 2021 was basically, again, the same factors, just a little bit bigger, a little bit more amplified, especially by the second or the third helicopter drop and closer together too. Closer one wave to, yes. built on top of itself right you had the last we... last helicopter from trump and then the the, the sort of the makeup bonus or the, the the bonus or whatever you want to call it from the the, the first helicopter from the biden administration M march 2020 was trump number one the very end of december 2020 was when trump number two was signed right. and then the middle of march was biden number one so the december Let's call it January, March. Quite you know. the bipartisan <laughs> double helicopter. I, you know, it's, that's you know another point we talk about here too is it's these are all bipartisan failures. So it's it's not really we're not trying to make this about partisan politics in any way, shape, or form. It's just simply that's when those things timed out to be. And you're right; those two were very close together. So in reality, helicopters number two and three were really two two A and two B. Really, because uh, you know they were somewhat related to related to each other anyway. 
But back to what we we're saying, it was a little bit more of a helicopter, a little bit more happened in consumer prices. Plus, the economy was a little bit further along in its rebound, even though that rebound was nothing like the V-shape that it was supposed to have been. It was still a little bit further along. Plus, you had the last vestiges of the lockdowns being removed. You had all of these positive factors combining together so that, that the imbalance between supply inelasticity, temporary boost to demand was so extreme that it caused a massive supply shock in prices. Oh, I guess I'm up, right? Okay, yes. I was going to pull up the graph again to show basically the surges. So we see the, we and see the, the double hump. And But now we're on the side where it's decelerating. Let me point out a couple of numbers. On a month-over-month -month basis, August was lower than July, decelerating. On a year-over-year -year basis, core PPI was higher. On a core month-over-month -month basis, it was, again, decelerating. And then PPI year-over-year -year, uh, for August, uh, the headline number, that was accelerating. So a year-over-year -year basis, yes, we're accelerating. On a month-over-month -month basis on the two measures, we are decelerating. Jeff, we're going to move on to... Even, we just, you know, I was going to say, even the commodity index, which is the one that's the highest since 1974... If you look at it on a rolling three-month basis, it's it's decelerated market remarkably since earlier this year. As we know, a lot of commodity prices have either come down or at least stopped rising. You think of think you know lumber is is one of the big ones people bring up. That one has actually crashed. Um, copper is not down a lot, but it's it's down significantly from its high. The general commodity indices peaked back in May. They are a lot lower, but they've stopped going up. So. All of these these uh, producer uh, price pressures, commodity price pressures, they're not the same as they were earlier this year. And so now we're starting to piece together why that might be. And if it's true that this was the predictable double camel hump of transitory factors, then we had expected to see and find this type of behavior going on right now. I think we might be in store for a third camel hump or the camel's head now because the COVID case counts are peaking and rolling over. It seems like we may be experiencing another bout of survivor euphoria, reopening boom three. And I think maybe over the next few weeks, couple of months or so, we might see kind of a light reflation again before it with, you know, the wisps, you know, they fly away and disintegrate. And then we see what their real underlying state of the economy is. And I would assume that we would then again start towards a disinflationary outlook. Jeff, I have a quick question for you, though. We haven't talked about this. When it comes to trade, though, global trade, you bring it up in your article, before 2008, good place. After 2008, though, not in a good place. And I'm, I'll pull up a couple of graphs here just to show my point. But as I talk over them, my question is, might we be entering a moment of deglobalization? This graph shows the year-over-year -year change in merchandise value that is uh, traded and month by month. And we can see before the crisis, it was growing at 6.5% at a compounded annual growth rate. Since then, only 1.9%. And I imagine, and you can look at this on a level basis over here, as well, this graph shows that from the start of the data until 2007, August, 182% increase in the merchandise value of global world trade. 
Since then, only 31%. You can do the same thing. And this is, this is the same chart, except now I'm putting that BIS total claims, interbank cross-border claims. And we can see that green line, how it kept pace and accelerated well beyond reason, but has stagnated just at the same time as trade did. Here's another one about FDI investment. Same thing, this one goes back to the, let's see, the 1970s. We can see how we are well, well off trend. Yeah, My we point, see this, Emil, we see it over and over again in pretty much everything. It's something changed around, I don't know, August 2007. My point to tie it in with inflation, though, is, Jeff, I think that maybe we will not revert back to a lower set of prices, but remain at an elevated set of prices, though the acceleration may stop. And I think that might be because we are deglobalizing. We are de-emphasizing efficiency, just-in-time inventory, and emphasizing resiliency. And resiliency has a cost. And I would imagine that we'll be moving production lines and supplies closer to the country all around the world. Maybe instead of putting them in China, it'll be in Mexico for or in the United States, and the costs will be higher, but the supply will be more certain. What do you think of the idea that, yes, we may not be seeing inflation, persistent, pervasive, but prices may not revert back to where they were before all the supply chain disruptions? I'm not going to buy that one. <laughs> and let me tell you, tell you're right, because this is higher cost, but who are they going to be paid for by? Who's going to bore, who's going to bear the burden of this cost? People. You're assuming that, that the companies are going to be able to pass them along to consumers when the monetary conditions say that they're not going to be able to, and therefore the costs are going to be the costs are going to be absorbed by the producers or the shippers, which is deflationary, because that will then be passed along into the labor market as fewer wage increases, less hires, more um more ways to work around using labor, all the sorts of stuff that we associate with the disinflation of the last uh, uh, you know, 15 years or so. So I don't think, you know, as the supply chain definitely continues to fragment, because that's a, that's a certain, you know, that's, that's a historically a part of what you see in deglobalization is fragmentations of markets. That's not necessary. In fact, historically, I, I don't, I'm not aware of it being inflationary anywhere. In fact, it's continuously deflationary because it's inefficient, and usually there's not the there's not the monetary system, monetary growth behind it that would allow this to be these costs to be this inefficiency and the costs associated with them to be continuously absorbed by the consumer sector. It just it doesn't happen. The problem is end demand. The problem is end demand because that continues to be so weak because employment isn't secure, wages aren't growing. We shouldn't expect an inflationary future because pro producers and companies won't be able to make a profit off that. So they will accept the lower, the higher costs. Is that right? They're going to have to. It's, it's, it's not really their choice. And it's the same lack of pricing power that we've seen companies faced with ever since 2007. Look, they've complained about input costs at various points along the way. 2011, the last time they were this, this, this rampant, and they never passed them along to consumers because they couldn't. 
in the labor market never really healed. Uh, uh, wages never really got going. Uh, you know, lack of recovery because of the monetary component. And I want to make, you know, I want to go back to the charts that you just brought up too, because what you see in global trade is in particular over the last year is not some massive spike in it. It's not like global trade has come roaring back from the depths and it's at record, record, record levels that are consistent with, you know, something like pre 2008. It's far from the case. When you look at this chart's a perfect example, you look at that and you think, we have massive spike, price spikes based on essentially limited trade volumes. What it, it can't be anything other than supply inelasticity and some of these other things, because it's not like trade has come exploding. It's, it's, it's elevated to a degree we've never seen before. That's just not the case. It is the case in certain places like the United States and the goods economy at West, Post courts, uh, West Coast ports and things like that. But overall, trade around the world is still depressed from where it should be and still it's really depressed from where it was uh, even two years ago. So it's not like trade volume is exploding in some kind of recovery maneuver. It's really just that trade started to come back a bit and it was much faster, much, much, uh, much, much, uh, much bigger than the supply end and the producer producers could keep up with. And that's really what created the price pressures. We're going to talk about price pressures in the consumer experience. We're going to talk about CPI in the United States in part two of this episode. Consumer prices in the United States, they're going up, but are they going up as fast? Might they be coming down? Will they stay down? Are they going to bounce back? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. We're gonna talk about what got them up there, if that's gonna continue. And to do that, we're gonna go back in time. We're gonna reference an article he wrote on the 14th of September at Alhambra Investments. And here was the title, CPI comes home to the other side of inverted tips. What does all that mean? Let's find out here. January, 2021 was the start of something big. Coronavirus vaccines had been discovered, publicized and rolled out. The economy recovering its footing. Uncle Sam was gonna flood not just the US but much of the rest of the world with the treasury's cash. Everything appeared to be going just right. If not in danger of being too much, too much of a good thing. It's this latter part that was the frenzy. It was a second bout of inflation hysteria, the first one from 2018. A hysteria, if you extrapolated in a straight line, would be what would never be anything more than a minor bond sell-off into the biggest thing since the great inflation, if not Weimar Germany. So the inflation we were seeing, the bond market was going to just lose it. It was going to be gone. Jeff, however, I came across a very good quote recently by Russell Napier. If extrapolation was all that was necessary, then the secret to investment success would be determined by the possession of a pencil and a ruler. <laughs> January 1998, Russell Napier. Jeff. It's we, true, isn't it, Emil? Yeah, I mean, tell me. <laughs> it's that easy. This, well, then, then, really, this is the hard part. But what we're talking about is what we start, you know, started talking about in the last segment, which was early part of this year, it finally seemed as like all those who have been predicting inflation, everybody who said 
you know, the Federal Reserve has finally printed too much money. The federal government has finally gone way too far into the fiscally insane after being fiscally insane for over a decade. They've now they've really done it. And we're going to see you're going to see the inflation that people have been predicting for a very long time. It's going to be here. It's showing up. And oh, by the way, the bond market, which has been right, as well as contradicting that assessment, you're going to see that too. The bond market, the treasury market's going to explode. Interest rates are going to skyrocket. All the things that we had been warned about, here they are. Early 2021, they're finally here. All the chickens have finally come home to roost. And bond market yields did start to rise, Jeff. They would rise yes, through March. So there, what, what could possibly be telling us, hold on, wait a minute, something ain't right. Two things the U.S. dollar, and the Treasury inflation-protected security. Tell us what both of them did within hours, days, of that bottom that, you know, in January when we thought everything was all clear. Yeah, early Jan early in January, every as everything was going in the right direction. Reflation was becoming inflation fears, and everybody was talking about 1970s all over again. All of a sudden, the dollar stopped falling. Remember, the dollar crash was a, is a, is a big part of this too, because if you have reckless money printing in an, in a uh, insane federal government that doesn't have any limits, you would expect the currency, as many have been predicting, over and over and over again, you would expect the currency to crash as well, as it seemed to have been doing late in 2020. The dollar's exchange value had become much weaker than it had been off the dollar shortage, quote unquote, strength of early 2020. But then all of a sudden in early January this year, just as this all this bad inflationary dollar crashing stuff was coming to a head, it stopped. The dollar's exchange value, especially against the euro and the CNY Chinese yuan, it stopped falling and started to, in some in some places and some currencies began to rise again. So that was already a, you know, a minor signal, some kind of signal that Something else is going on here. It can't be the flood, the, the final devaluation crash, whatever you want to call it. And this, this, is a, this is something else going on. And you're right. Within two days of that, in the tips market, you had seen inflation break-evens, which are a measure of market-based inflation expectations. These had been rising as consumer and commodity prices, had, commodity prices mostly had been coming up from the lows last year and had begun to start moving in a relatively uh, sustained fashion. But within two days of the dollar bottoming out, the five-year break-even got a little bit higher than the 10-year break-even, which is the opposite of the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to see the shorter run inflation expectations to be uh, less than the longer run because there's an upward slope to inflation expectations too. And that's the first time that had happened since the summer of 2008, we had this inverted inflation expectations and tips, which was a signal, if we, if we boil it down into its actual cases, what it says is that the market's starting to think that the inflation pressures or the price pressures, not inflation, the price pressures are going to be more short run than long run, which is exactly what happened in 2008, by the way. So you have these two signals just as everything was supposed to be the most inflationary ever, or at least the most inflationary we've seen in maybe four or five decades, yet the market was saying, okay, let's, let's pump the brakes here. There's something else maybe going on here, and maybe it's not inflationary. 
couple of markets were saying that. Just like in 2018, inflation hysteria number one was rip-roaring, yields were rising, but the dollar was pausing and then turning around. Yeah, not falling, not crashing. So that's why you got to take multiple independent points of view. The bond market, we rely on it, but you've got to look at many different measures just to triangulate and get a better sense. Plus, if you understand the context of the last 14 years, you may have been a little bit more hesitant about whether or not the global economy was going to recover. Jeff, we're going to talk about the camel humps. The camel humps. We're going to see it in a graph. We talked about it in part one. Let me reveal to the audience what the CPI numbers were, though. The inflation rate year over year for August was quite high. It was 5.3%, but it was lower than in July. The core inflation rate also on a year-over-year -year basis, was lower than in July. If you look at it on a month-over-month -month basis, again, lower in August than in July. Inflation rates on a headline basis, not just core, again, lower. So on all four measures, core, month-over-month, -month, all lower than what we saw in July. And we're going to see it even more clearly in the camel humps. The, yeah, can like you tell you us know, this, what the camel humps are? <laughs> we've seen this before. We saw it last year, where the introduction of the Treasury Department's, uh, you know, deposits into into individual accounts created a temporary burst in price action. And, you know, it was a a one month, and I think it was July of 2020. Some of the highest month over month changes in the entire history of, especially the core CPI, but it was only the one month. Or, or, you know, it, the, the highest was the one month and there was a couple other months that were uh, relatively uh, robust, too, in terms of prices. So it was but it was nothing more than a, a multi month period. It was certainly not a multi year period, which is what we expect to get into in inflation. And of course, a lot of people said, well, no, this is just the start of something. This is just the start of something like the 1970s. And we're just starting to see it now. But then by the end of last year all of the inflation pressures just disappeared as if almost as quickly as they showed up because there isn't the actual secret ingredient to inflation going on here, which is the monetary end of it. It doesn't matter how much Jay Powell said he flooded the world with money, didn't happen. And so what happened in the middle of 2020 started to happen again in, in early 2021, which as we talked about before in the previous segment, all the same ingredients except even more enhanced, the helicopters were we're spaced closer together, much can, more condensed time frame, even greater supply and logistical problems, all of those things combined to really shoot prices up, especially in March and April. But since March and April, we've started to see those pressures recede. And it depends on what bucket you're looking at, like the core CPI, you can see pressures start to recede a little bit, but then you go into something like the service sector, you can really see the double camel hump, which is now almost you know, fully formed and fully pronounced, which suggests that we're already now up to, up to the data for August, we're already now seeing the other side of transitory, just like we had seen last year in 2020. Jeff, most people, when they think about what's happening right now, and because of what they read in the financial press, they believe that this is what's happening. I love this. We've we did this before. It's unicorns on fire and rainbows. Can you give us a very quick walkthrough about what it used to be before 2008, but why that model no longer applies when it comes to stimulus and money printing 
in the economy we exist in. Yeah, we're talking about permanent shocks, unit roots, all that stuff. Uh, the the premise that most economists and pretty much everybody in the in the uh, economics world starts with is that we're experiencing a solid, uh, we have an unbroken uh, economic potential, which means that recessions are actually recessions. They're nothing more than temporary deviations from that potential. And that once the contraction portion of it, which is the A to B line on the chart here, once that ends, you immediately go into recovery where recovery legit actually means something specific, which is you return back to the trend that you had been on beforehand. That's what a recession is. It's a temporary deviation from trend, not a break in the trend. And what you do is if you're a fiscal policymaker or a monetary policymaker when confronted with a recession is you throw money at it. You try to fill in that hole with aggregate demand in whatever form. The neo-Keynesians like to believe that government spending is just as good as any other kind of spending. So governments will ramp up their government, their budget deficits. Monetary policy will become quote unquote ultra loose and easy. All with the idea that we're going to fill in that gap until recovery takes over and we get back to potential. So that's which the idea. Yeah, which then causes this incredible inflationary fire, right? Because there's if too much money. If you do too much, right? If you fill in too much of that hole, you've done more than, you know, you've, got, you've gone beyond what the economy needs. And then as recovery comes back, you've done too much and that, that releases the inflationary fire. So that's what used to exist before 2007, theoretically. But now we definitely exist in this where there's no recovery. You throw in all that money, we never get back to potential. Yeah, what we're showing, what I'm showing you here is not the, this is not monetary policy. This is the fiscal side of things. The fiscal side is the government spends a bunch of money. You know, think back to 2009 with the ARRA, you know, the stimulus bill. Um, you know, we've got all sorts of government direct helicopter drops in 2020 and 2021. So the fiscal side is doing what, they're, what they think they should be doing. But they don't seem to understand or at least acknowledge the potential that this is not a normal business cycle. This may not be a normal recession like it was not in 2008 and 2009. This is not a V-shaped actual recovery. It might be instead permanent shock, therefore very different set of circumstances. So if you're throwing more government money into an L-shaped recovery where potential has been broken, we've gone through a permanent shock, you're not going to get the inflation because the economy itself has shifted to a different state and it's, it's a much lower state, which you know government spending cannot recreate. And then of course, Monetary policy isn't throwing money at it at all. It's throwing a bunch of pop psychology, smoke and mirrors, rainbows and unicorns, and hoping that making people happy, making stock prices go through the moon will make people happy enough that they actually spend and, and invest and save and hire and all sorts of stuff, which, like rainbows and unicorns, is about as effective. We've had two reports this week about consumer inflation expectations. One was this morning. Another one was the day before Tuesday's release of the CPI numbers, and that came on Monday. And that came from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And their study goes back to 2013. And I have a graph, Jeff. They ask, what do you think of inflation for the next year? What do you think of inflation for the next three years. And the graph that we're looking at right now is for the year ahead, Jeff. And I've done a handy job of noting when some important monetary and fiscal things took place, like when did the stimulus checks 
get signed or approved? When did Jay Powell go on 60 Minutes and say he was printing? And when did the Fed announce that they're going to let inflation run pure? All those things. And it's interesting that they didn't quite like blast off during any of those really monetary didn't do much at all right <laughs> yeah it's really it's a lot like they were more ignored. recent when this is taken off this is the one year march and april year. right emil it always comes back yeah. to march and april and, pretty, and then we talked about this right. it's not just it's not just in the united states it's all over the world you see this peaking behavior in march april and may and then since then and it's not surprising that consumers would you know, expectations would rise in that that particular time period because they look out gas prices, food prices, everything was rising at that time, but that still doesn't make it inflation. And you go to something like the University of Michigan survey, which I think you were just referencing that came out today, the one-year expectation is through the roof. It's up above 5%, but yet the five-year expectation is not even 3%, which like the inverted tips shows that consumers realize by and large yeah, prices have gone up a lot, but they're not going to stay up and they're not going to stay going up by the same rates. The chances are over time, things come back to where they're supposed to be. come back down to they revert back down to the mean, which unfortunately is a reversion back into, if not the same pre 2020, you know, non recession, non recovery baseline, maybe even worse than that, because let's face it, did we really honestly believe we would go into a huge life-altering recession in 2020 and come out the other side of it by 2021 completely unscathed? I mean, the, that idea itself is sort of preposterous and it's such a low probability. So the chances of getting into the inflationary situation, real inflationary situation, really depended upon an actual V-shaped recovery taking place, you know, filling in the troughs, but filling it in too much. If we really have experienced another L or another break in potential, another harmful break in potential, then inflation potential was essentially zero. And so that meant that what happened in consumer prices would conform to Emile's camel or double camel hump, which is what we're really saying here is that in the, even in the CPI, which has been up in the stratosphere for several months and still is in August in the year over year changes, on a month over month basis, we are definitely seeing very determined outlines of the other side of transitory. It is exactly the same hump as we saw back in, Ju back in July of last year, except a little more pronounced, a little, little uh, sustained a little bit longer, a couple more months. But, but overall, in consumer prices, they are being transitory, which means it's not inflation. Not monetary inflation. Not monetary inflation. Is there I just another wanted, kind? <laughs> I just, well, I, well, that's what people no, I know. who it's, are new to the show, it's, they. It's an emotion. Inflation is an emotional topic. And for a lot of different reasons, I mean, there's the one camp that says, you know, they want to cheerlead for the Federal Reserve. They want Jay Powell to do a good job. They want to believe in neo-Keynesian and econometrics and those types of things. Oh. So they're cheering for inflation to confirm the effectiveness, effectiveness of stimulus. Or they may not be cheering for them but they believe that the people in charge are powerful because they say right. things and people say they're powerful. It's the Wizard of Oz thing. So maybe you're not cheering for them, but you think they know what they're doing and they've got the levers. So there's a couple of reasons why they think this may be monetary inflation or fiscal inflation, but 
Yeah, and then the other emotional response to this is what we just said before, that people want people, people want everybody to look at this and say, look, the Federal Reserve is, the, those bastards are destroying the dollar, they're printing money. Look at the government, it's spending money it doesn't have, it's spending money generations don't have. Our grandchildren are going to be paying for it with their grandchildren. And so they want inflation to draw people's attention to this reckless, this insanity. And inflation, they think, is the only way that will happen. And in some cases, they might be right because nobody seems to care. And that's true. These are big problems that need to be dealt with, not the Federal Reserve, for, but for different reasons. But, you know, the federal government is the brokest institution the dark side of humanity has ever created. That is absolutely the case. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be inflationary. And that's really where you have to step back from the emotion and say, yes, that is correct. We need people to focus on all these things, that these big things that are wrong, but just because they're wrong doesn't mean they will be inflationary. And that's really the problem. It doesn't mean the dollar will crash. In fact, the opposite. And so that's where you got to take a step back from the emotion, which we're trying to do here and separate ourselves from those things and say, you know, the, the government's reckless tendencies are a tomorrow problem. There are much more immediate today problems that come first. That's why you don't see the dollar crash, dollar shortage. That's why you don't see the treasury market crash. You don't see interest rates skyrocket because there won't be inflation. There isn't too many treasuries. We have these other types of factors that we need to focus on, which tell us not to be emotional about inflation because it can't be inflation. It can't be monetary inflation because the money just isn't there. So we have to figure out, you know, if you agree with the fact that the federal government's broke and going broker by the minute, you got to find some other way to get people to realize the dangers about that. It's not going to be inflation. Just because these bright points in our sky, these loud mouths say things doesn't mean there aren't more powerful forces, right, Jeff? And those powerful forces overwhelm all the the storming and the activity of the Federal Reserve and the, and the federal government. And that's the global monetary system, which represents the entire yeah, planet. So yes. Right, I mean, it's, and it's so much harder because as we just said, it's not what you can see, right? It's, you it's can't not. see the monetary, mm -hmm. so we can't observe, we don't, you know I mean? It's hard for even us who, who, who pay a lot of attention and study it. It's hard for us to really figure out what's going on in the monetary system. But you do see what the Federal Reserve is doing. You do see the federal government's budget deficit go into absolute insane proportions. You do see the bank reserves on the Federal Reserve balance sheet go up into multi-trillions. And it's hard to say, well, how can you say that doesn't matter? And we're not saying it doesn't matter. We're just saying it's not inflationary. It does matter. And it and will there's matter. There's something bigger. Right. It's just stronger. The stuff More that you gravity. can't see in the monetary system, that's what's causing the lack of inflation. And because you can't see it, it just makes it more confusing and frustrating and maddening because we can't draw people's attention to what the government's doing and, and saying, look, this is wrong. This is bad because the government then says, well, if this is wrong and bad, where's the inflation? Why isn't the treasury market blown up? And so it's just a combination of bad factors. And we're not saying that we're cheerleading for that or that we agree with that, what we're telling you is to take a step back and understand that maybe this stuff that the government's doing, the Fed's doing, just isn't inflationary. Not that it isn't bad or incorrect or inappropriate or whatever, it's just, it won't be inflation, real inflationary. Instead, we're, we're, we're seeing uh, the camel humps here. Let's talk about the Campbell humps that we see in import prices. That's the third way of looking at inflation. We're gonna talk about that in part three this episode.
We have been talking about inflation in the United States from three different perspectives, actually two different perspectives, and this one's going to be the third one. We're going to be talking about import prices and export prices in the United States. Might they tell us something about price increases, inflation? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder what the difference is. Is there a distinction without a difference, or is there a very important difference between a price increase and inflation. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. On the 15th of September, you wrote for the Alhambra Investments blog, a piece that was titled, First Transitory in Producers, Then More for Consumers, Now a Negative for Import Prices. And you start out by introducing us to helicopter money because we've been talking about camel humps that we see in graphs. And the first camel hump and the second camel hump was caused by helicopter money that was released by Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden. But guess what, Jeff, as you remind us in this very first article, we always, almost always forget that the helicopter was introduced at the start of this entire silent depression in 2008 by Mr. Bush. But we've forgotten about it. Why have we forgotten about it? Because it was that good and that effective, right? It's something that 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 uh, is going to stand as an example for what government should do throughout the entire test of time, right? No, it, it's people forget about the Bush helicopter drop because it was just that it just that it forgettable. Like gone. Exactly. And it was overwhelmed by events. And that's really kind of the point we're making here is that yes, these can have a temporary impact. In fact. At, it, it, when it happened during uh, at the time it actually happened, it seemed like it worked. Yes, because GDP in the second quarter of 2008 in the United States turned positive after being slightly negative in the first quarter. You know the the initial rumble of recession. All incomes. You know uh, Bush 43 with his experiment with the U.S. helicopter, the tax credits that were deposited in people's accounts. Three hundred dollars. Is that right? $300 a person, $600 a couple. I mean, I forget the exact numbers because it's just that forgettable. Anyway, it doesn't matter. At the time, it Not was- Not at the time. At the time, it was radical, right? I mean, back then it was like, oh my God, this is some brand new policy. How could it possibly fail? It's huge. It's immense. It's enormous. And in, again, as I said, the initial results were very favorable, very positive. GDP but turned positive in Q2 2008. And the FOMC in the meeting minutes- they were saying, hmm, you know what? I think uh, I think maybe the worst has passed. That, that combined right? with their rescue, what they thought was their rescue of Bear Stearns, they thought this was enough. We have done enough monetary and fiscal policy to avoid any recession. This stuff has been so good and so effective. By the middle months of 2008, they're already talking about how inflation was going to be out of control and how they better get on to hiking rates, as we've talked about before, Emil. They were already doing that in Europe in the middle of 2008 because they thought this stuff really works really well. As we know now, of course, it didn't work at all. It had some temporary transitory effects. Yes, GDP was positive in the United States in the second quarter of 2008, but not again for a very long time. And it was one of the worst contractions since the Great, it was the worst contraction since the Great Depression up to that point. So it whatever effects there had been from the, that original helicopter, they weren't huge and they sure as hell didn't last very long. And that goes for the Federal Reserve too. The combined effect of monetary quote unquote accommodation or easy money 
which none of those things, none of those terms should be applied, as well as this direct injection of cash into the, the consumer wallet, temporary, transitory, small, limited impacts. I don't want to apportion blame just to the Republican president, because shortly after that, we had our terrible crisis, but comes to the rescue, who else but President Obama, who unleashed an even more gargantuan fiscal spending program that in his latest memoir, he is proud of, and he said it was sufficient, and that it was on par, if not better than what Roosevelt did during the Great Depression. So, did, but I would did agree that, with that, actually, but that doesn't mean it, made, it was effective. <laughs> no, that's the exactly is what I'm trying to say is yeah, yeah. then we had a Democrat, which, you know, the, uh, what's the word? Uh, we're supposed to say that they spend much more. That's the, oh, gosh, yeah, what's they have, the stereotype? They, they had these, the stereotype of being more uh, pro, profligate than the Republicans. But I'm not even sure that stereotype was ever true at any point. But did it save the economy from... Uh, exiting the depression. No, we remained Obviously in not. one. Neither the, did the New Deal. That, and that's, that's the point I was making. The, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. Perfect. Okay, sir. Yes, great. We're bringing all this up because we have forgotten. Of course we have. It's been 14 years. Why should we remember all that stuff? At the time we thought lights out, we're melting down the dollar down to the struts, okay, to the foundation. Here we are again, 14 years later. Now we've got a Republican president sending out helicopters, followed up by a Democratic president with more choppers and infrastructure spending. And the question is, is it going to melt the U.S. dollar down to a little puddle? Is inflation going through the roof? We didn't see it. Ex we saw it in a transitory manner in what? Producer price indexes. Uh, consumer price indexes, and now we're going to be looking at import prices, Jeff. Do you tell us what did we well, yeah. see in import, import prices, prices? Maybe is where I think most people would expect it, right? Because it's been a goods frenzy. You see on the news the uh, port traffic congestion in Los Angeles, Long Beach, and the West Coast, and everything else. So it would make sense that one of the main uh, channels for consumer or producer or whatever commodity price pressures to be pushed through the US economy via the global trade, inbound trade, import sector. Not only that, we've heard nothing about, uh, you know, as we talked about before, shippers and freight rates for the first time in forever that have gone through the roof into the stratosphere. Container rates, for example, are, I mean, just obscene levels. So it seems like a lot of this inflationary pressure, if it is really inflationary pressure, is actually coming in from the outside. It's coming through the import channel. And of course, the BLS does us a nice favor by keeping track of these various buckets of prices, of pricing activity to give us a sense of, can we follow it from the import channel? Can we follow it from commodities and producers? Is it coming out into consumer prices? And so what we see from the import price index is that, yeah, there's that huge hump early part of this year. There's also the, cam the, the camel hump in the middle of last year. So we're already starting to see the double camel hump and then, of course, we get past May of this year to June and then July, really, and then August, where the, the idea of transitory isn't just in lower and decelerating rates of growth. We actually now have an outright contraction in average import prices, even though the fact that in, embedded within the BLS index was a healthy and huge uh, uh, contribution 
from the auto sector. Auto prices are still going up uh, at a relatively fast pace and prices I believe are still accelerating in them. So even despite auto prices in the import index, it was still negative in, July, in August. And that was not just because oil prices were lower in August compared to July. The non-energy import index was also about 1% lower too. So it's a broad-based, uh, at least one month retreat in import prices. Export prices also are lower than they were in July for the month of August, whether or not you measure it year over year or month over month. Uh, and then import prices year over year and month over month also lower in August than in July. Perhaps this ties back to how we opened the show by discussing that French shipping company who says we're going to pause freight increases for containers because for some reason, and here we see it, maybe it's because of what we're seeing in import prices. Yeah, and that's the one part we haven't really touched on in, in our three segments here yet. That we've been talking a lot about the supply factors, the logistical problems and all that kind of things. And as those things get worked out, we would expect prices to be transitory. But there's also the demand component too, mm. because as prices go up, and a lot of, you know, especially talking about inventory uh, in the, su the supply chain, all the inventory is being stuffed in the supply chain, it's presumed and assumed that demand would at least be relatively the same in the last half of the year and the early part of next year as it had been during the frenzy in the early part of this year, that the economy globally, especially the United States, would continue to progress along the same robust lines, and that as supply factors get worked out, they were at least getting worked out and those lower lower price pressures would, would, would be absorbed somewhat by continually rising demand. And so we wouldn't expect consumer or producer or import prices to just come right down and, and crash. But if demand actually is not as robust as everybody was hoping it was in the early part of this year, and it doesn't stay as robust, then you would expect now you have a double price problem if you are a freight a freight liner like the French firm CMA, what is it, uh, CMA CGM, then you have not just the supply factors coming off, you have you know, logistical problems starting to get solved, but you also might have the issue of demand. And you also might have the issue of demand when a lot of big companies have been just double and tripling up on inventory, just hoping to get something to arrive in their, in their shelves so that they have something to sell before Christmas. So you have a lot of potential demand questions that are starting to materialize right now that does have a lot to do with the import, import uh, part of the US economy, which is one reason why maybe we've seen the other side of transitory and import prices much more sharp and much more obvious in August already in August than in consumer and producer prices, that maybe there's some sensitivities and inelasticities there that are now working against the uh, bulge in consumer, that second hump in the camel. So to summarize, all month-over-month -month readings that we've gone over, PPI, CPI, export, and import prices are lower in August than they were in July. And almost all of the year-over-year -year changes are lower, except for PPI, which was higher. Yes, the rates of change are lower, which means deceleration, second derivative. That's what we're talking about. But with Thank import you. prices, it's actually negative. Import yes. prices themselves, not the rate of change. The import prices themselves were actually on average 
lower in August than they were in July, despite the healthy increase in, in automobiles. So the they were lower. That's already into deflation discounting, which is a sign that maybe, you know, if it, you know, you never want to take one month and extrapolate too far with it, but it's consistent with all these other things that we're seeing, which is that prices are starting to fall off. And if there is this possibility of demand coming down, then we'll have a situation where there is too much inventory, which historically speaking, has always been disinflationary, if not outright deflationary. So the fact that it showed up in import prices already in August, it's a, it's a small alarm bell that says, you know, first of all, transitory, yes, but maybe even more than just transitory price pressures. The only two things that I can measure that are going up the other way are expectations as measured by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the University of Michigan of consumers. So those expectations are going up. We'll see what happens over the coming months and the rest of the year, Jeff. That's it for me for this episode. Anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to bring up before we head into the weekend? No, I think we just need to wrap up again. Inflation is a emotional issue. And we understand, you know, when we're talking about, you know, you and I were just talking about this off the air. How should we even talk about it? I mean, because when we say, I say there isn't inflation, you know, Emil, you always point out and, you know, sort of cringe and look, you know, people are not, they don't agree with me because they say, hey, hey idiot, the consumer price index is up 5% for the fourth straight month for the first time since the seventh or first time since the eighties. How can you say that's not inflation? So I hope this episode has sort of clarified our position where it's not inflation because it doesn't have the monetary component that would turn it into actual inflation, which is sustained over time. And what we're really seeing this year are the temporary transitory impacts of some other things. Yes, Uncle Sam, supply, logistics, all these other kinds of things that were, again, as we said, predictable. They're behaving predictably. We saw this happen last year already. And it's not the type of monetary inflation, I hate saying that term, but you understand why you have to say it's not the type of monetary inflation that would lead to actual inflation, which is monetary inflation. We're, and that's what we're seeing over and over again. And again, not just in the United States. I know we focused on U.S. inflation rates here, but across the rest of the world, it's the same thing. China inflation never really got very high and it's already receding it's consumer prices. Dangerously low. Japan. Japan never even got on the plus side. Once they moved to their base 2020 number, the small plus, uh, plus uh, positive numbers for their CPI disappeared entirely. And they have yet to see a plus sign despite, was it 130 trillion yen increase in the Bank of Japan's uh, balance sheet. Uh, Europe, some of the inflation rates have gotten high in August, but that was entirely because of the base effect with last August. And even then they're nowhere near what the US counterparts are. So we're seeing receding inflation that didn't get very high out uh, uh, in countries around the rest of the world outside the U.S. And then the camel humps in the U.S. inflation rates that are becoming even more well-defined by the month. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for teaching us, educating us, Eurodollar University. I can't wait to do it again. I'll talk to you again next week. All right. Take care, Emil.